The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled How Do You Diagnose and Treat Hydrodenitis Superativa? Compare your approach with the experts. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash myv860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Hello, this is Marjorie Montañez-Wiskovich from the University of Florida. Welcome to this educational activity on hydradenitis suppurativa. Joining me in this discussion is Dr. Martina Porter from the Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center and Harvard Medical School. Welcome, Dr. Porter. Thank you. Glad to be here. The reason we're here today is because we've all asked ourselves this question. How do we diagnose and treat hydradenitis suppurativa or HS? During this seminar, I urge you to compare your approach to the data we will be discussing today. Our specific objectives for today include review the latest information on diagnosing HS, highlight the impact of HS on patients' quality of life, explore therapeutic options with discussion of the various limitations of current HS therapies, and lastly, explain how to apply clinical safety and efficacy data to the novel therapies for HS. I will be discussing the first objective, and Dr. Porter will be discussing the remaining objectives. The diagnosis of HS is mostly a clinical diagnosis. Many times it can look like HS, but we're not sure. Let's start with detailing the clinical presentation of HS and how best to avoid diagnostic delays and pitfalls. Michael, not his real name, is a 27-year-old who presented to our clinic he reported that starting at age 16, he noted what he called ingrown hairs in his groin. In his early 20s, his symptoms progressed and he developed painful abscesses and inflamed nodules that he called boils in his axilla. He would visit the ER periodically where they would incise and drain the symptomatic lesions and give him short courses of antibiotics. However, this provided minimal or, or only temporary relief. He now reports bloody and purulent drainage from persistent abscesses. A representative picture of what his inguinal fold and his thighs currently look like is on the slide. For patients like Michael, it is important to assess the level of pain and the chronicity of the symptoms together with physical exam clues such as morphology and distribution of lesions. The key features that suggest HS for this patient are, number one, the lesion type, mainly papules, nodules, and abscesses. Number two, the location and distribution of his lesions, mostly to the groin, medial thighs, axilla, and the buttocks. And number three, the chronicity and progression of his condition as the years go by. How do we define HS? HS is the presence of recurrent painful nodules and abscesses in intertriginous areas that can progress to involve rupture with associated drainage. Recurrences can then evolve into sinus tract formation and scarring, which impede range of motion. The prevalence of HS can vary between 0.1 to 4% depending on the population. Among white patients, it is twice as common in women compared to men. For Asian patients, it tends to be more common in men. When you compare white patients with black patients, HS is up to three times more likely to occur in the African-American population. It typically occurs after puberty and before menopause, but can also occur in children and postmenopausal women. Risk factors of 
HS include tobacco use, obesity, and a family history. HS is a chronic but treatable disease with variable prognosis. Complications associated with its chronic inflammatory state include chronic pain, scarring, lymphatic obstruction, and an increase in certain cancers, including the skin, colorectal, and Hodgkin's lymphoma. This is why recognition and adequate treatment are essential. We know a lot about the clinical presentation of HS, but we're only starting to understand its pathogenesis. The disease is thought to start with occlusion of the hair follicle. This causes dermal infiltration with various immune cell types and elevation in multiple cytokines, such as tumor necrosis factor alpha, interleukin-1 beta, and interleukins 12, 23, 17, and 36, among others. The subsequent inflammation leads to follicular rupture and release of contents into the dermis, causing further inflammation. The cycle ends with epidermal thickening or acanthosis, tissue destruction, and potential for tunnel or tract formation. Besides follicular occlusion, there are other potential causes such as mechanical stress, hormonal dysregulation, dysbiosis of the skin microbiome, and metabolic dysregulation. Let's go back to our patient Michael. When we asked him about other health issues, he reported a history of mild psoriasis. He was also overweight and suffered from depression and anxiety that had caused him to withdraw from his typical activities. These comorbid conditions, especially the burden on mental health, are common in the HS population, and addressing these concerns is equally important to addressing and treating the HS itself. For Michael, the diagnosis is made solely on history and clinical findings. For some patients, the diagnosis is not as certain, and you may consider performing a biopsy. This slide details the clinical findings that can help you diagnose HS. On the history, inquire about the length of symptoms, any prior diagnoses, associated symptoms such as pain, discharge. You're trying to identify how chronic the illness is. We should also inquire about smoking status and weight as HS can be exacerbated by tobacco and obesity. Family history of HS may also be helpful in establishing the diagnosis. In addition, HS is often accompanied by other inflammatory conditions, so asking for the presence of Crohn's disease, psoriasis, or arthritis will definitely suggest an inflammatory process is going on. While performing a physical exam, you would examine the entire body, paying close attention to the axilla, anogenital, and inframammary skin, but keep in mind that HS can present in a more generalized distribution. The classic lesions of HS are abscess and nodules, sinus tracts, and purulent discharge. Quiescent disease has comedones or blackheads, atrophic scars, and prominent follicles. I mentioned that HS does not tend to travel alone and can be associated with other inflammatory conditions. This table lists some of the comorbid conditions seen in this population, which include cardiovascular disease, metabolic syndrome, anti-2 diabetes, as well as inflammatory arthritis, inflammatory bowel disease, PCOS, and other inflammatory skin conditions like psoriasis, acne, pyoderma gangrenosum, and mental health disorders such as depression and anxiety. 
It is important to recognize that the inflammatory process present in HS can translate to other inflammatory states as listed here. Also, with the increased cardiovascular risk and increased risk of mental health disorders, a multidisciplinary approach is warranted. With comprehensive care, these patients need their skin and comorbid conditions treated, along with addressing the cardiovascular disease risk factors, such as promoting a healthy diet and exercise, along with tobacco cessation. We covered the clinical presentation of HS. What else can look like HS but isn't? The differential diagnosis for early stage HS includes folliculitis, typically caused by bacterial infections or trauma, infections like erysipelas or acne, a furuncle, which refers to a single hair follicle, or carbuncle, which refers to a cluster of hair follicles, can get deeper inflammation, but these are typically isolated events. The incited agent can be bacteria, such as staphylococcus in those instances. A rupture epidermal inclusion cyst can form an abscess and mimic HS, but history and a lack of chronicity should be clues that can distinguish the two entities. Pylonidal cyst is frequently seen in patients with HS, but is distinct from HS and is characterized by an acute abscess or in its more chronic phase, termed pylonidal disease, a chronic fistula or an asymptomatic sinus in the sacrococcygeal region. Perirectal abscesses, similar to furuncles, can also be considered in the differential. On the other hand, the differential diagnosis for late-stage HS includes rare bacterial infection called actinomycosis, mycobacterial infections like tuberculosis, infections like granuloma inguinale caused by Klebsiella granulomatis, lymphogranuloma venereum caused by Chlamydia trachomatis, cat scratch disease caused by Bytonella henselae. In addition, there are some inflammatory conditions like cutaneous Crohn's disease or pylonidal disease, as mentioned earlier, that tend to affect the groin or anogenital skin and can mimic HS. Once you diagnose HS and have ruled out its mimickers, you should stage the disease. There are three stages as delineated here that have increasingly more scarring. Stage one disease has isolated nodules without sinus tracts. Stage 2 disease has recurrent abscesses and some tract formation and scarring. Stage 3 disease, the most severe, has diffuse involvement of the affected area and multiple interconnected tracts and abscesses. For our patient, and based on the presence of recurrent abscesses, scarring, and tunneling, his stage is Hurley stage 2 to 3. Here are some pearls I wanted to share on diagnosing HS and treating HS patients. HS is a chronic inflammatory skin disorder with lesions ranging from deep-seated painful nodules to abscesses with sinus tract formation to dense fibronodular scarring. Location and chronicity are key to the clinical diagnosis. Intertriginous involvement is certainly the most common for patients with HS but remember, HS can occur anywhere in the body. HS begins with obstruction of hair follicles, followed by rupture and subsequent inflammatory reaction. Infection does not cause HS. It is not contagious, and it is not the result of poor hygiene. The development of HS appears to have both hereditary and environmental influences. The strongest associated external influences are obesity and smoking. 
HS can cause significant psychosocial distress because of the pain, the drainage, the odor, and the location of the lesions. And lastly, the best prognosis involves early recognition and aggressive treatment at the early stages of the disease. Treatment includes psychosocial support. Here are the pitfalls of misdiagnosis Delays in HS diagnosis and thus untreated disease can cause disease progression and scarring and thus more severe disease and greater patient discomfort. When patients were queried about the time to diagnosis from symptom onset, the majority of patients experienced delays from 2 to 10 years, but sometimes as high as 19 years. These delays occurred at every step of the process, from seeking care to receiving a diagnosis to referral to a specialist, and above all, to receiving effective treatments. Most patients also reported having over three misdiagnoses before a final HS diagnosis. Furthermore, patients also needed to see at least three different clinicians before receiving an accurate diagnosis. Again, the longer the delay in the diagnosis, the more severe the illness. For example, 90% of patients with the most delayed diagnosis required surgical intervention for their disease. The goal with the talk today is to help you diagnose HS and to diagnose it early to prevent disease progression, to prevent chronic pain, and from patients having more severe disease, which leads to scarring, and this affects patients physically and mentally. I will leave you now with Dr. Porter. Thank you very much. So now we're gonna talk about the patient journey with HS. So the burden of HS. So we looked back at two patient surveys, one pretty large with the N of 500 and another smaller survey, as well as one cross-sectional study. And if you take anything away from this, the burden of HS should really be known to be extremely large. And if you look at patients in these studies, 60% of them have mentioned a large or very large impact on their quality of life in terms of impairment. And the most common cause of this decreased quality of life score is actually pain. But it's not just pain that patients are suffering from when they have this disease. They also have less educational attainment, higher rates of unemployment, um, embarrassment, social stigma. A lot of this comes from the discharge, the staining, the odor, as well as the disfigurement and scarring of the disease. It's constantly there as a reminder, even if they don't have any more inflammation. And really, all of this leads to negative impact on relationships, and we see a lot of depression and anxiety in these patients as well. And when we look at quality of life in comparison to disease severity, there really is a good correlation. The more lesions patients have and the more sensitive areas that are involved, such as the inguinal or gluteal region, the worse quality of life scores the patients have. But how do we really measure quality of life in these patients? There's different um, indices or measures that are used. We'll go over some of them today with these benefits and limitations. But the first one is the Dermatology Life Quality Index or the DLQI. And you see these scores all the times across all different types of skin disease. It is a skin specific quality of life tool and it was designed for clinical practice, but it's used both in a clinical and research setting. However, it's not specific to HS. It only looks at one time point and it really can't measure the cumulative life impairment that the patients have. One of the other really common quality of life measures that we use 
in HS, both for clinical assessment and in clinical trials, are these numerical rating systems for pain or itch. Um, but in HS, it's really pain that's driving this disease. These are really easy to administer. They're scales of zero to 10, where we ask patients, what is your pain? Zero is no pain and 10 is the worst pain imaginable. This is very unidimensional, as you can imagine. And it's also a little bit controversial because it's very hard to um, administer these when you're asking, is it your worst pain in the last 24 hours, in the last seven days? And so sometimes patients will give different scores based on how they're prompted with the NRS. Um, and the other thing to note is that you might have a patient who has a really high pain score one day because they have a single lesion that is causing them a significant distress, but their overall disease may be better. And so you have to take this into account when you think of this scoring system. Another scoring system that we use is the EQ5D. And again, this is another um, quality of life tool that is not specific to HS and it's not even specific to skin disease, but we use them very commonly in clinical trials and also uh, clinical practice. It's a little bit long too. And then more recently, we've had very specific HS quality of life tools, and they all have kind of similar names. But one of the first one was the HSQOL or the HS quality of life. And this was a research tool. It was very long. It had over 50 questions initially, and it took more than 30 minutes to complete. And a lot of things, um, assessment tools that we use like this end up not really being implemented in either clinical or research practice because of the length of time that it takes to complete them. Um, they did do um, validation of this and the high school, which is below, which I think is very important in quality of life measures. The hydronitis superterior quality of life, or high squall as it's been called, is a research tool. It was designed specifically to show changes and um, the other thing is that it was actually derived from a greater um, outreach measure, I would say, within the HS community where they identified key themes that they found both patients and providers or physicians felt were important for HS patients and they then group them into the high school tool itself. It's also available in multiple languages and it was tested in different countries. And so there's this um, thought that it has a very good cross-culture, cross um, ethnic uh, potential, but it has not been validated yet. Set. Uh, and also we haven't used it in very large clinical trials to date where we have results, but they have started collecting some of the data, which we'll hopefully see in the next year. So how can patients partner with their physicians or providers to define their HS treatment goals? One of the main things that we really rely on when we treat HS patients are their patient reported outcomes. And this is them rating their pain, rating the appearance of the disease, rating the impact that it has on their self-esteem. What kind of stigma are they suffering from? What are their quality of life scores? Um, what are their concerns about how the treatment affects their day-to-day -day life? Um, and then also asking the patients like what treatment they want based on their individual needs. And some of that is related to, are they able to go to work or school? Are they present there, but they're not able to function because of the pain or the odor? Or are they completely absent because their disease has prevented them from even getting to school or work? And those are the things that we rely on from patients, but as physicians or dermatologists, the things that we are actually um, trying to assess as more objective measures, like what stage is their disease? How much scarring do they have? How many inflammatory lesions do they have? And then really trying to partner with them to identify which treatment options would fit um, both the physician and the patient's 
sort of assessment of their severity and their needs or goals going forward. So what do quality of life measures say about quality of life in HS specifically and even in comparison to some of the other skin diseases that we treat? So a German study of about 500 patients measured the DLQI scores and they found that um, 20 to 40% of patients had very or extremely large quality of life impairments. A Danish study of about 180 patients with HS compared it to about 260 patients with psoriasis and really did find that the DLQI scores were higher, indicating a more um, significant impact of quality of life on HS patients compared to psoriasis. And they also looked at people who had acne, hand rashes, and controls. And you can see, um, although all these things tended to impact quality of life, it was HS that stood out the most. But those patients that had higher quality of life burdens or worse quality of life scores, they tend to have higher rates of anxiety and depression and then also loneliness compared to controls or psoriasis patients. And one of the things I think that's coming to light a lot more these days too is that there is a very significant impact on sexual problems or distress or dysfunction in HS patients and we see this more in women than in men as well. So one of the other things that I want to talk about is a flare. And we use the term flare, I think, quite loosely in HS. And patients themselves even describe having flares of their disease. But there's actually no uniform definition of a flare. Nothing has been validated. And if you look into the literature, there's actually multiple definitions of what a flare is. Um, In clinical trials, for example, they've really adopted a very specific definition, which is a 25% increase in the number of abscesses and nodules that they have compared to their initial baseline assessment. And they use things um, like making sure they have a minimum increase in the 2AN as well to define the flare. Um, But in actual practice, Patients and physicians, they don't count lesions at baseline and compare them when to say, oh, 25% means flare. But flares can also be a measure of um, treatment efficacy. And in, in my clinical practice, we do ask patients how many flares they have, regardless of how we define it. We use their, let them define it themselves and just see if that number has decreased as they've been on a long-term maintenance therapy. And for most patients that are on successful treatment, we see decreased intensity or decreased frequency of flare, but oftentimes we don't see those flares totally eliminated. So how can we use these patient goals to inform HS treatment decisions? The main thing is that you really need to keep an open line of communication with your patients, discuss the treatment goals with the patients, the For example, can we decrease the pain? Can we control the flares? Can we prevent worsening of disease? And then following that up, you really need to set realistic expectations. And I tell this to all my patients at their first visit and every time we change therapies or add something. And I have to remind them that there really is still no cure for this disease. There are many therapies that we have now, which is just been a great, I think, scientific breakthrough for these patients over the last five years. But most of them are directed at the inflammatory component of the disease, and they're not necessarily directed at the scarring. And so as we see better treatment options, I've had more patients really return still very upset with their condition because the inflammation is totally controlled, but they have these scars that have not gone away still. And the other thing I tell patients is that change may be very gradual. It can take months before they see an appreciable difference, and it doesn't mean that the therapy isn't working. 
We check in frequently with these patients as the treatment progresses, um, and hopefully that will um, essentially serve two purposes. One is to make sure that they're responding to their therapy, and the other, I think, is to just continue to provide them hope and comfort that there's somebody on this journey with them. And the last thing I think to remember is that many of these patients are very interested in holistic care. So they don't want to come in and just talk specifically about one medication and that's it. They really have a lot of other comorbidities, including things like behavioral health problems, anxiety and depression. And they can also have other things like joint pains. Um, They can go through special times in their life like pregnancy. And all of these things may require other specialists to help manage these comorbidities. So now we'll move on to our last section, which we've titled The Promise of New Approaches to Hydranitis Superativa Management. And here we'll really focus more on the therapeutic options, including a lot of the new um, things that are sort of coming through the clinical trials pipeline. So here's back to patient case one, where we're really talking about treatment. So again, this was Michael, our 27-year-old patient. We've diagnosed with Hurley stage two or three, depending on the area. In this picture, he's a three. Um, And now he's gone through a 12-week trial course of adalimumab. So the dosing for adalimumab is 160 milligrams at week zero, 80 milligrams at week two, and then 40 milligrams weekly. And these are subcutaneous injections. For a lot of these patients, uh, this alone is not enough, and so we'll consider the addition of antibiotics as well, and they've done this in the clinical trial setting, and I'll show that data to you too. One of the other things to consider here is we're treating his disease as dermatologists, but he has also reported these depression or anxiety symptoms, and so it's worthwhile to discuss these with the primary care provider or referring him to a behavioral health specialist if needed, um, based on the degree of his symptoms. And then we'll also talk here about patient case two, which was Kate, a 31-year-old female. And so you can see in this picture, she has much more mild disease. She's Hurley stage one in this area. And so for these patients that are in the mild category, um, we usually don't turn to adalimumab first. Although it's the only FDA-approved treatment, it's approved for moderate to severe disease. And so these patients like Kate will often do a trial uh, for a few months of topical antibiotics like topical clindamycin, things like um, chlorhexidine washes. And then we can combine these two with oral antibiotics such as doxycycline 100 milligrams twice daily and or hormonal therapy, which for women can be spironolactone or it can be um, uh, birth control pills, for example, or other hormonal contraception that we think of uh, low androgenicity, just like we treat acne. And then the other thing to consider to our procedural intervention. So for patients who have individual lesions like this, we can consider treating with, for example, intralesional kenalog or unroofing or excision. So this is a combination of the North American Clinical Management Guidelines and also the Swiss Practice Guidelines. And they're actually quite similar. Um, You'll see here that they separated patients out by Hurley stage, which is mild, moderate, and severe. And one thing to note about Hurley stage is that it's actually a surgical staging system. It doesn't take into account the degree of inflammation that a patient has. It's really looking at the extent of tunneling and scarring. And so um, this is a just a representation based on the Hurley stage severity, but again, doesn't take into account. Someone might be Hurley stage one with very severe inflammation, and that's why the bars are going all the way across. But 
We generally think of, like I was saying, multiple categories. There's lifestyle modification and general treatments. And some of the things that we advise and we've touched on already are smoking cessation, um, body weight reduction. And then it goes through kind of a laundry list of everything that we use for HS from hormonal therapies to retinoids, um, the antibiotics, um, zinc, systemic antibiotics, and then getting more into these immunomodulating or immunosuppressive medications. And then for surgical and laser treatment, these can really be used at all stages, but we become more aggressive with the surgical or laser treatment as the disease progresses in terms of the Hurley staging. And so the main types of procedures that we're performing are um, excisions, wide local excisions to remove like the entire affected area for Hurley stage two and three, but then unroofing or de-roofing procedures for sinus tracts or patients anywhere in the uh, one to three category. So what are the non-medical interventions for any patient with HS? Number one, as we keep touching on, is patient education and support. A lot of patients ask about wound and skin care, and there is some data to suggest that topical antiseptic washes can help these patients significantly. Um, but for patients who have more severe disease, topical antiseptic washes alone are likely not gonna make a big difference. For those patients, they'll often ask about wound dressings or bandages, and you really wanna help find things that are absorptive because a lot of people will get this sort of irritation or, um, related dermatitis, especially in areas where there's a lot of moist um, drainage. Unfortunately, most patients aren't able to get these covered through their insurance very easily, and so a lot just end up using gauze. For pain management, this is a really large part of patients' lives. I think we saw already that pain impacts quality of life more than any other aspect of this disease. The treatments that we used are things like non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, or NSAIDs, acetaminophen, and we can also consider other analgesics. Those don't have really great data. For a lot of patients, they feel like it takes the edge off, but it doesn't really significantly improve their pain. The best treatment for HS-related pain is really anti-inflammatory therapy targeted at the disease. And some patients do take short courses of opioids to help with the pain, but we try to avoid those long-term, particularly because there are some studies that imply that um, long-term opioid use can prevent wound healing. And then in terms of dietary modifications, we did slightly mention the aspect of weight loss, but there is some role for things like um, dairy and patients will say that there are certain foods that make them feel more inflamed or trigger their disease and by eliminating these from their diet independent of what their weight is they find that this can really help control their symptoms and then antibiotics so there's both topical and then oral as well as intravenous antibiotics we mostly think of topical antibiotics being effective in early stages of disease meaning patients who are more early stage one with not a lot of inflammation. Systemic antibiotics we use for all stages, and these can be both for treatment of disease flares, but also for maintenance therapy. And so we'll often give short courses of antibiotics when patients report an exacerbation, even if they're on a background therapy. And But we can use them too long-term for months to years for patients as well to try to control their disease. Um, the one antibiotic I think that gets a lot of good press as it should is IV ertapenem. So this is a very broad spectrum antibiotic and there's lots of theories about why it works. 
I sometimes refer to it as the miracle drug for HS because for some of these patients who are early stage three and very severe, IV ertapenem is the only thing that dries up their lesions. It doesn't have a long-term effect, so once they stop the therapy, it usually recurs and returns to what it was at baseline. But we use this commonly for, again, patients who with severe refractory disease as they transition to other medical therapies that may take a while to work or as a bridge to surgery. Um, and then just related to this, we always need to consider what the side effects of the antibiotics are. And we get a lot of pushback, I think, from a lot of infectious disease doctors too about using very broad spectrum antibiotics to treat these patients. But I think we do it out of necessity. Um, and it's something to really have open lines of communication with if you're working with an ID specialist. And again, we try not to use these as their long-term treatment option, particularly now that we have more therapies available to the patients, um, including surgery. Other medical treatments that we use are systemic retinoids. The common two are isotretinoin and acetretin. Isotretinoin, as everyone knows, is very good drug for acne. It doesn't have the same effect for patients who have HS. Acetretin, which is a longer-acting um, medication but not safe for patients or women of childbearing potential in most cases tends to have better outcomes when used for HS. Both of them can really help with some of the comedonal component I think of the disease but acetretin tends to be more anti-inflammatory. Corticosteroids we also use um, as sparingly as we can due to the side effect profile and the belief that uh, some people think that the patients will worsen after they stop. But these are very good adjunctive treatments for flares as well. Dapsone has more data now, particularly as we start to phenotype patients out. Um, there was one study that showed Dapsone for what we called follicular patients, patients who had very small, like individual one to two centimeter nodules, but really didn't have very many fistulas and um, not a lot of drainage. It was quite effective for effective for those patients, which was primarily men. And then hormonal therapies, obviously in women, spironolactone, finasteride, and oral contraceptives all have demonstrated benefit. And again, I think they do work very well for patients who have that sort of follicular or follicular nodular type of HS where they have these individual lesions that are about a centimeter in size. The other thing um, that may help with hormonal therapy is for patients who always report flares just prior to their menses. So we'll move on to the newer therapies, which are the biologic agents. And as I mentioned before, adalimumab is the only FDA-approved therapy for HS. It was approved in 2015 for moderate to severe disease. And in the trial, they defined that as patients who had at least four abscesses and nodules. Um, Adalimumab, like I mentioned, is given weekly. It can also be given, uh, instead of 40 milligrams weekly, 80 milligrams every other week. When we look at the data for the 40 milligram weekly, which was the Pioneer study, I'll show it in more detail, only about half of patients achieved the primary outcome, which was high score or high score 50. Um, in real life settings, we find that these patients tend to develop anti drug antibodies over time, and if they do, it seems to indicate that their response will be less. Um, and so quite a few patients actually drop off of adalimumab or lose response over time. Some patients, especially those that are obese, probably need higher doses, and at least in my clinical practice, we started to use higher doses of adalimumab off-label because we found that that was actually a better treatment for some of more of our severe patients. And then like all immune suppressing medication, there is an increased risk of infection.
So this was the Pioneer data. And just as background, they actually performed a phase two study with adalimumab and they looked at adalimumab dosing that was very similar to psoriasis where they did every other week versus adalimumab 40 milligrams weekly. And the every other week dosing didn't actually have a statistically significant difference. And so when they went to the phase three trials, they went with a higher dose. And it really does make sense because this is a very inflammatory disease. And we really think patients compared to patients with psoriasis and maybe even compared to patients with inflammatory bowel disease have higher inflammatory burdens. So if you look here at the data, the outcome measure that they use was something called high score. Um, and high score is essentially a, at least a 50% improvement in their abscess and inflammatory nodule count with no increase in their overall number of abscesses from baseline to, in this case, week 12, and no increase in the overall number of draining fistulas. So when we look at these patients compared to placebo, um, in the Pioneer 1 and 2 studies, it averaged out to about 52% of patients or sorry, about 50% of patients achieving um, high score. And that was statistically significantly different from placebo. In terms of the adverse events though, there were no difference between the adalimumab group or the placebo group in terms of the overall number of AEs or the serious AEs or AEs leading to discontinuation. There really is no significant safety signal from the HS studies that was different from, for example, psoriasis studies. And there were no group differences in serious infection rates, which is good because that's essentially what we've seen in adalimumab in real life as well. They also did a long-term extension through week 168 um, for some of the patients that started off in Pioneer 1 and 2. And a lot of these patients did maintain their response. And so... Um, and so this drug ended up getting approved. And when we think of it in real life practice, because there were some patients who continued to improve after the 12 week mark, we generally have patients trial adalimumab for at least six months before we consider them a complete failure. There's a lot of emerging and investigated HS therapies. This has been the most exciting, I guess, five years that have happened for HS in its whole history. Um, Right now, we have two IL-17 inhibitors, secukinumab and bimikizumab, that have finished their phase three studies. And I'll show that data here. There's also a small study looking at bradalumab, which is an IL-17 uh, inhibitor as well. And then um, other small studies that looked at ustekinumab and anakinra. And then more recently, we've had JAK study or JAK inhibitor studies that have been completed, industry-sponsored phase two studies for povercitinib, upadacitinib, and brepocitinib. Um, and then povercitinib has already announced that they're doing a phase three trial. So infliximab has never really gone through big clinical trials for HS. Um, Part of it is probably because there are um, biosimilars available as well now, but this is also a TNF-alpha inhibitor. It's an IV infusion. Most people are familiar with this drug um, because it's approved for many things like psoriasis, psoriatic arthritis, Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis, rheumatoid arthritis, and ankylosing spondylitis. It's still off-label treatment for HS though, um, but we have a lot of small studies that have been done in the real life setting um, by various HS specialists or specialty clinics around the country. And they really have all started to see the same trends. So this was um, a retrospective chart review from Steve Cohen's group. 
And he looked at patients, a small number who had HS, um, who were early stage three and had a higher BMI. And he looked at patients who were either starting infliximab or increasing the dose, where he found that patients did the best on a loading dose of seven and a half mg per kg. So they got seven and a half mg per kg at zero, two, and six weeks rather than the normal five mg per kg dosing. And then they went all the way up to 10 mg per kg every four weeks. And those are the patients who tended to have the most benefit. And this was actually very similar to a um, infliximab dosing study that um, Chris Syed's group at UNC also published around the same time. And they also looked at patients who are mostly Hurley stage three, so the most severe patients, actually had to be updosed to 10 mg per kg on average every six or eight weeks. Um, so the frequency was in, increased, but even up to every four weeks. And because we're using this drug in the most severe patients, we even can go higher than this um, to try to get clinical benefit for these patients. So now to move on to the more exciting new data, um, secukinumab, which is an IL-17A inhibitor. We already know this is approved for plaque psoriasis, psoriatic arthritis, ankylosing spondylitis, axial spondylar arthritis, um, and then enthesitis-related arthritis. And again, this is an il 17 a antagonist, it's a subcutaneous injection. And you can see here where this acts in the pathway of inflammation. So this was the first 16-week data of the Sunshine and Sunrise trial for secukinumab for HS. And similar to adalimumab, this was a phase three study with the two arms that were designed identically. Um, they also looked at the high score response at week 16. Um, and what they found essentially was that they had uh, each arm, sorry, had two different doses. One was um, the loading dose, which was the same across all the studies and is the same in psoriasis. They got 300 milligrams once a week for five weeks. And then after that, they either went on to every two week or every four week dosing. And as background, what we know in psoriasis now is that patients who are over 90 kilograms essentially do better on secukinumab at the every two week dose. Um, and they largely think this is because of their weight. In this trial of the sunshine and sunrise, in the sunrise, which is on the right here, the Q2 week and the Q4 week both differentiated from placebo. The response rate was in the low 40s percent compared to the placebo rate, which was about 30%. In the sunshine trial, only the Q2 week, week dosing separated from placebo. The Q4 week dosing didn't um, meet its statistical endpoint, even though numerically there was an improvement. The other thing to note is that there were no new safety signals versus the established safety profile of secukinumab, and they even did allow patients into this trial who had inflammatory bowel disease as long as it was well controlled. And you can also see here too that there were greater improvements during the induction phase as well but they continue to improve slowly up to week 16. And actually at week 16, patients who are on placebo crossed over to receive either the two or the four week dosing. So we aren't able to compare these groups anymore to placebo. But even looking at this, you can see that the patients continue to improve even out to week 24. And so when I think about this drug and even having seen it now in clinical practice for quite a few years is that, um, the patients that we're seeing here essentially are continuing to improve long-term. So to stop at 16 weeks, uh, if you don't have a significant enough response, would probably be a little bit too soon. These patients may need 
again, just like adalimumab, a six-month trial on the drug before we could really figure out how much they responded. But the other thing to note, too, is these patients did maintain their response up to 52 weeks, which is very encouraging. And then bimikizumab, which I mentioned also finishes phase three trials, is a little bit different from secukinumab in that it's an IL-17A and an IL-17F inhibitor. And there's some thought that IL-17F may be more involved in the HS pathogenesis, but again, we don't have a lot of um, good data to really demonstrate that. Um, Bimikizumab is not currently available in the United States for any indication at this time, although they've also finished their phase three studies in psoriasis, and it is um, approved in the EU and Great Britain for plaque psoriasis. But it will be also a subcutaneous injection. And so Bimikizumab now has just completed its phase three trials, which they called BHERD1 and 2. And so this had about 1,000 patients. It was similar in size to the secukinumab trial. They looked at um, different doses, and it was a 16-week period. That was the primary endpoint, and then a 32-week follow-up period. Only the 16-week data is available right now. But for high score 50, they showed approximately a 45 to 54% response compared to about 30% for placebo. So again, it differentiated itself from placebo. They also looked at high score 75, and um, we don't have the numbers here, but there were a larger percent of patients that achieved high score 75 in bimikizumab versus placebo. Um, And then they also looked at a lot of quality of life scores, and hopefully we'll see those published soon. But they will look at the long-term responses of these patients for both high score 75 and um, high score 50 out to 48 weeks. So stay tuned for that. Um, And the safety profile, again, for bimikizumab was similar to their psoriasis data. So the question now becomes, how do we incorporate these um, agents that have just completed phase three into our management once they get approved. And so the challenges, some are existing regardless, are would managing comorbidities help manage HS or would managing HS help manage the comorbidities or both? And I think when we think of these newer agents um, that have just completed studies, we need to think what else they're approved or indicated for and what is their side effect profile. And then how would we combine these newer agents with antibiotics or surgery or anything else as part of this multimodal management? I think most people are wondering, would these drugs essentially replace the use of TNF-alpha inhibitors, which is what we've sort of seen in psoriasis because the newer agents had better efficacy? Um, I think it's to be determined in how everybody will incorporate these into their practice going forward. Um, and then we'll go over a little bit more about the AEs and then evaluating, evaluating quality of life and the clinical response. So again, just touching on some of the challenges that we're facing as we try to figure out where all the new treatments fit into our treatment algorithm. Just in general, we still see that self-reported or patient-reported severity doesn't always correspond to our clinician-rated severity. And so um, the scoring systems have still have criticisms of these high placebo rates, although we've seen with higher efficacy bars, this um, placebo rate really tends to drop. And some of the scoring systems or some of the patient-reported outcomes that were used are still not fully validated. Um, 
And again, we're really reassessing some of these quality of life scales that are HS specific in the clinical trials. And hopefully we'll have some more data soon. But these quality of life measures like the DLQI, the NRS pain, the EQ5D, the high squall, and then our scoring systems, uh, which are the Hurley stage and then the lesion counts and all of the scoring systems that are derived by the lesion counts, I think are becoming more and more familiar um, to both um, dermatologists as well as those who are uh, really focused on the clinical trials. So just thinking about adverse events or sort of the side effect profile of these drugs um, is really important when we start to think about which drugs are best suited for which patients with HS. And some of this is based on their comorbidities and a lot is also based on, I think, patient preference and um, physician or provider comfort with prescribing these drugs. And so secukinumab from the Sunshine and the Sunrise trials, there were um, about a third of patients who had infections and it didn't really seem to matter if it was um, the study drug or the placebo arm and it could be either the two or four week dosing. One of the things to note is that they performed the Sunshine and Sunrise trials in the peak of COVID. So they started right at the beginning of 2020. And so I think all of these trials that were conducted during this time, we'll see a different um, AE profile than maybe what we're used to. They also had Candida infections. They were still low rate as well as hypersensitivity, which was um, also low rate. There were very, very low rates of malignancy and inflammatory bowel disease and not anything really significant between the drug and the placebo and the trials. And as I mentioned before, these were patients um, who had no history of malignancy for at least five years prior to starting the study. And then for inflammatory bowel disease, the second kinumab sunshine and sunrise trials actually allowed patients in who had um, well-controlled, not active IBD. And for HS patients in general, we do find a higher rate of inflammatory bowel disease. And historically, we've tried to avoid IL-17 inhibitors because of the potential to exacerbate IBD. But fortunately, in this trial, we didn't really see that happening. Um, for bi- uh, And by happening, I mean, we didn't see the emergence of high rates of IBD in, in a population that was already prone to it. For the bimikizumab phase two trials, we also saw a rate of infection about 20% in the bimi arm compared to 4% in the placebo and 9% in the adalimumab arm. And I believe this was driven primarily by candida infections. Um, They also had a slightly higher rate of injection site reactions, but they had very low rates of IBD as well in their phase two studies. We'll have to wait and see what the phase three data shows in the much larger um, cohort. And then for the JAK inhibitors, um, just in general, things that we think about because we will see these agents now going from phase two to phase three, is that in the HS population, we're still seeing these higher rates of acne, just like we saw in eczema studies and in the inflammatory bowel disease studies. And then also um, there are some VTEs or clot risks that's associated with JAK inhibitors. And we have seen these occur in the trials, but not to any level that is... Um, higher than what we've seen previously. 
And so what is the role of surgery in HS? The main downsides of surgery, I think, is that it involves quite a bit of healing time depending on the amount of skin that's being removed. And patients do have to do post-operative care. And one of the most common questions that I get from patients is how long will I be out of work if I decide to have surgery? They're also concerned about pain, things like lifting their kids up if they have their axillary surgery done, for example. And then they will have to do wound care and also monitor for infection risk. Um, But as I said, this may be the most effective treatment for HS, particularly for eliminating refractory areas and for treating scars, which we don't see a response for medical therapy. Um, But really the, I think, central thought now is that surgery should be used in combination with medical management. Um, The surgical outcomes tend to be better, I think, for patients who are on, having surgery plus being treated together and will, uh, with medical therapies, and I'll show that to you too. And what they looked at was adalimumab pre and post surgery. So patients were evaluated and included in the study if they were planning to have surgery on their HS. So there are about 200 patients that were involved and then the patients were randomized to adalimumab plus wide local excision surgery or placebo um, plus this surgery. And so what they found was that adalimumab has less surgery was effective um, when they looked at the high score outcome across all body regions. And that's really not surprising. It basically showed that they had the same, adalimumab had the same response in patients who are planning to undergo surgery as they did in the patients who were in the Pioneer study. One of the other things to note is that the patients didn't hold the adalimumab at all. So they took it for 12 weeks and they had the surgery and then they continued on therapy for 12 more weeks after. Um, and even staying on adalimumab, which is an immunosuppressive medication, there was no increased risk of post-operative wound infections, complications, or hemorrhage in the adalimumab compared to the placebo arm. And so a lot of times now we use this um, study to sort of discuss with our surgeons that patients don't necessarily need to hold their adalimumab to get their HS surgery and that it may actually help prevent some of the wound dehiscence, at least in my Uh, clinical experience um, for patients who have undergone wide local excision. And then more recently, and this is even in in EPUB ahead of print, there's some real world data looking at adalimumab with surgery. And so this was a phase four trial conducted by um, a few groups in Europe. And there are about 62 patients who received adalimumab alone or um, had surgery. And so adalimumab plus the surgery had a 19-point reduction in the HS severity, which they used the IHS-4 to measure. And this was compared to only a 7.8-point reduction in the adalimumab monotherapy group. And then when we looked at these patient-reported outcomes for quality of life, looking at DLQI, there was an 8-point reduction in the DLQI score compared to a 4-point reduction um, for patients who only went who were only taking adalimumab. And so I think the take home here is, like I was saying before, combining surgery with medical therapy can lead to even better outcomes for patients, both in terms of their overall disease severity graded by a physician and their quality of life. And so we really shouldn't consider this disease to be one where a single therapy will probably be um, the best option. Most patients will probably end up getting combinations of treatments, particularly the ones that have more severe disease. Um, And so there's this other um, 
survey called the Global Voice, and essentially it was a very large survey that was conducted across Europe and North America in multiple HS specialty centers. They had over 1,400 patients respond, but they asked them various questions. Um, the initial um, publication, which isn't shown here, looked at essentially like time to diagnosis and, and showed delays in diagnosis for the patients. But this also, the second part, looked essentially at the treatment satisfaction or dissatisfaction for HS patients. And it wasn't specific to one type of treatment, it was any treatment in general. But the sad part is that 45% of patients in the survey were either dissatisfied or very dissatisfied with their treatment. I would say the bright spots are that satisfaction doubled when patients were on biologic therapy and also um, for patients who are treated by a dermatologist. And other things that were linked to lower satisfaction scores were smoking, depression, increasing number of comorbidities, and an increasing flare frequency. And so I don't think any of that is very surprising, but this really does emphasize the need for, um, I think, more aggressive medical therapy for patients and also for patients to be tied into a dermatologist because Fortunately or unfortunately, we're the ones who will be prescribing these biologic agents for patients with HS um, because this is just um, what we're familiar with and what we've done for years for other diseases. And so here to get back to our patient cases. So again, we're looking here at Michael. He's now tried six months of alimumab. He really hasn't had significant improvement. And we usually do a six month um, trial, but for patients that are this severe, we often will escalate therapy more quickly. Um, if they haven't shown any signs of improvement after the first like eight to 12 weeks. Um, and again, this is a very severe patient. And so the next thing in our current regimen that we would probably consider is trying IV infliximab. And again, as I mentioned in these studies, we would consider a loading dose of anywhere from five to seven and a half migs per kg, followed by up to 10 migs per kg every four weeks for maintenance. And for some patients, we'll escalate therapy much more quickly based on their disease severity, but this patient is probably gonna need a very high dose of infliximab to see a response. And then if, um, with or without the infliximab, we should also consider for this patient wide local excision to essentially remove all of the diseased areas. What we'll probably see in the future is figuring out where other biologics or small molecules like the IL-17 inhibitors and JAK inhibitors fit in this treatment algorithm. And for some patients, it may be that they're the first line therapy. Um, and for others, it may be that they're trialing adalimumab or infliximab first before they um, go on to one of these other agents. And this is patient case two, our patient who had much milder disease, but probably still a significant um, impact on our quality of life. And so she had moderate improvement with a 12-week trial of systemic antibiotics, but in this case, the patient was essentially still not satisfied with the degree of control she had. And so for these patients, we actually consider adding a trial of a um, of another medication, and this could be something like Dapsone. If this were a male, for example, we could also consider Acetretin. And um, even though 
some people might look at this patient and say, oh, she's just early stage one. She just has this one lesion here or two. Um, that shouldn't qualify for a biologic. For patients like her who have already failed other systemic therapy and still have significant impacts on their quality of life, or they have disease like this in multiple areas, um, we do consider putting them on systemic immunosuppressive therapies like adalimumab, like secukinumab, if you're able to get stuff like this off-label, because these patients are still suffering, and I think these are the scenarios where just assessing their disease based on like a Hurley stage or any other like abscess and nodule account may not be sufficient. And this is essentially the time when you need to discuss with patients what are their priorities, what would they like to try, um, uh, and then discussing the risks of those therapies. And also this patient could consider, especially if this is just one lesion that's recurring over and over, a surgical procedure to remove that lesion. But for patients that have lesions like this that come and go in all different areas, like it might be here one day and then up here the next day and then over here like a couple weeks later, those patients are not as good surgical candidates because it's hard to target a specific lesion and you can't really go along and just cut out every, every lesion every time. I mean, you can, but it ends up being a lot of surgery. And so here are conclusions, and hopefully I've really driven these home for you, but HS is characterized by painful recurrent lesions. They're most common in the intertriginous areas, but they can occur elsewhere on the body as well. Misdiagnosis is common, and a delay in diagnosis is also very common for these patients. A biopsy is not needed to diagnose HS. This is a clinical diagnosis. HS severely impacts quality of life more than any other skin disease that we currently treat. And there are many new potential treatment options and this is a really exciting time for patients with HS. And these new treatment options include biologics and small molecule inhibitors and really, it really is in the end all about offering new hope to these patients who for years have gone on without any good treatments. This was a great discussion on the exciting developments in HS diagnosis and treatment and how these advances may positively impact quality of life. Before we conclude the program, be sure to review and download the resources that we mentioned and please feel free to share them since they may help other clinicians who care for patients with HS. That ends our discussion for today. Thank you again, Dr. Montanez Wiskovich, for your insights. We hope you found the activity informative and useful to your practice. Thank you again for participating. This activity is certified by University of Florida College of Medicine. This activity is developed in collaboration with our educational partner, PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash myv860. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Novartis Pharmaceuticals Corporation.